Welcome to the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Chris. I'm Dave. And I'm Carrie. And thanks for joining us. For today's episode, we are excited to share our conversation with Rick and Rose Admiral of New Life Prison Ministry in Pella, Iowa. It's great to connect with them. We met Rick and Rose on our trip to Houston last summer, and we talked to them about their work starting a church inside of a prison. And you don't think about that much. Not your typical model. No, yeah. no. <laughs> the, 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 the big wigs in some church planting organization don't say, how about in a prison? <laughs> but, but there it is. Uh, and it, it, they were fascinating. Just just loved yeah. getting to know Rick and Rose. And they shared some of their stories of hopefulness. They encouraged us to consider restorative justice and remind us of the value that all people, even those that uh, are otherwise cast aside, might have. So with that, let's get into the conversation. Welcome to episode 92, New Life Prison Ministry. Welcome to the Sandbox. My name is Rick Admiral, it's my wife Rose, and uh, we're church planters, except our unique planting was in the prison setting. You're planting churches in prisons? Yes. Yes. Wow. Okay. Actually, only one one church so far. Okay. okay. So we've planted a church seven and a half years ago in Newton Correctional Facility in Iowa. Yeah, it's called New Life Prison Community. Okay. So how did you get, I mean, when we think about churches, uh, we think, hey, I'm starting a new church and I need to get 40 acres and I need to get a parking <laughs> lot and I need to get all these things. And uh, that is not what we imagine when we hear that. So how'd you get involved with this work? It was all about conversations, having conversations with the prison to see if they were open to it, but also the local congregations to see if they would be willing to support it with their volunteers, but also with their offerings. Mm. And both things happened. In fact, we met with the local congregations within maybe about a 30-mile radius of the prison, and they were extremely supportive of this. Mm. Cool. They'd heard, heard of prison ministry before. They knew what we were about, and they were pretty fired up to join uh, the process. So it wasn't just like... A Lone Ranger thing, but it was a, a partnership with local congregations in ministering at the prison. And then when we got to the prison, we bought, brought about three of us there, and um, we met with the prison officials, including the warden of the prison. And at the very end of the com- conversation, they said, when do you want to start? And we <laughs> interpreted that as green light go. Yeah, yeah, cool. I want to step back a minute, though, sure. because Rick went back to school and seminary later in life. And he was starting to grow into a passion of doing prison ministry. And then he just um, felt called to go into seminary. And then through seminary, um, he realized that there was an organization, uh, organization called Prison Congregations of America, which is what we're representing here mm-hmm. at the youth rally. Mm-hmm. And he discovered that that might be a fit for him. And so during seminary, he discovered that there was already a church plant um, planted within our denomination in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And he got approval to do his summer internship. And so we moved our whole family to Sioux Falls from Michigan. And he did a 10-week internship there. And at the end, um, the pastor of that church um, talked to him and kind of did a little, you know, pep talk, you know, and review how things went and said, Rick, you're a lifer. Wow. And hmm. I think the, the Newton Pella area in Iowa might be a good place to check out. And um, 
So then we started looking at that, and that's where we ended up. But we looked at a couple other areas, but that's where God was opening all the doors for us. So you ended up doing prison ministry, and it sounds like it's a team effort uh, it for, is. for both of you. Yes. Very much so. Um, I focus on the preaching and teaching ministries, and Rose focuses pretty much on the prayer ministry and the music ministry. But in a lot of ways, we work together. We share office space together. We raise funds together. And it's a very much a coordinated effort. And so you're at a party, and somebody asks what you do, and you say prison ministry. How does that play? I mean, how does that go? Or, or, or how do you respond when people ask? Some people are a little bit shocked. Like, yeah. they were like, why do you want to do that? Or what's yeah. the point of that? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But most people are very curious, and they want to hear more. Mm-hmm. And it really invites a conversation to take place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It what opens a door. Yeah. Sure. It opens a door, and, and you kind of can feel out where people are at as far as their feelings about what needs to happen with prisoners and where they're at as far as the justice system and how they feel about prisoners. There's, you know, there's kind of that, some people are really black and white and there's no hope for these guys. And other people are Mm -hmm. like, yeah, they need to be restored. Yeah, they're more optimistic. They need Jesus. Mm -hmm. So I was just gonna say like uh, the response of of what's the point. I feel like there's probably a lot of answers to that, but how, how might you answer that question or respond if somebody says that? Well, the point could be um, for the individual themselves that was the offender to change their lives so that they become a better citizen, but also the impact that it has on the community. Mm -hmm. You know, um, if we develop hardened criminals and we send them back to their communities to commit other crimes, we're really damaging the neighborhoods. But if they find Christ within the prison, then perhaps they'll they'll be a better citizen and live a more productive life Mm -hmm. within their neighborhoods. Also their families too. You know, they often see um, a chain reaction in crime that goes from father to son, and then it goes right on down the line. What they want to do is break that chain and so that their children um, avoid Mm -hmm. jail or prison time altogether. I guess for me, I I often, um, I have to remind myself, but it's a good reminder that these men that we're working with in the men's facility they're God's children too, mm-hmm. and they're created in his image. And I try to remind them of that as well, that they are a child of God and that God loves them. And so if I look at them as a child of God made in God's image, then there's a reason for them to succeed, to move on in life, mm-hmm. to grow, yeah. and to have a Gives hope them purpose, in Jesus doesn't Christ. It? Yeah. I'm curious, as you were, you kind of alluded to it earlier, but what is the pathway that's led you here? I mean, what in your past, what in your story is, has led you to this, uh, this ministry, this work? It started way back for me. I started a correspondence ministry with Crossroad Bible Institute, which is correcting Bible lessons for prisons, uh, prisoners and then um, sending them back with an encouragement letter. And it's all done remotely from your own home hmm. uh, and you through the this? mail. Probably in the late 90s, I first got started. And then in the early 2000s, um, they proposed that we go to prison for a crusade. And I was very curious about prison. I'd never been inside the walls of a prison or jail. So I wanted to know what it was like. I'd seen a lot of TV shows, Mm -hmm. but I was very skeptical that it was perhaps different than the way they showed it on TV. Mm -hmm. And so I went in there kind of curious looking for adventure, but also maybe a little bit fearful that people would spit on me or mock me or say four letter F bombs against me or something like that. (laughs) But 
when I got in there, everybody was so friendly and so appreciative that we would take out of our time to visit them that it became very addictive for me mm. that once I went in once, it was like I couldn't get it out of my system. I wanted to go back. Mm. And so I got more and more involved. And at the same time that I was getting more and more involved in prison ministry, my job was very unsatisfying. It was a paycheck that I used to put bread on the table. And so I was going sort of a, through sort of a midlife crisis at the time, and I was looking for a true vocation. And I really found it in prison ministries. And so when I lost my job in civil engineering, I signed up for seminary. And in the process of going to seminary, I found my calling and that was becoming a prison pastor. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of the short version. There was yeah. a lot of bumps on the road, but that was the general gist of the story, wouldn't you say, Rose? Yeah. Yeah. And I wasn't quite with him. <laughs> um, I was the prayer warrior at home. Okay. And um, he was doing the correspondence. And you I, never wanted to go in, did you? I ya? had uh, two young children at home, and I really didn't feel called to do the correspondence. I kept thinking, what am I going to write to these guys? I don't know them or, or mm -hmm. women or whatever. And we had gone to a, um, a retreat with Prison Fellowship because we were starting to get a little more involved. And the, they opened it up to us, and we went as a couple. And I talked to some other couples that were involved, not in prison churches, but just doing ministry. And um, the wives kept saying, oh, you're going to be going, you're going to be going. And within a year, I was going with him. And we started just volunteering, helping out the chaplain at a local prison, um, fill in for um, leading worship. We weren't ordained or we were just in our church and yeah. we just went on just Sunday nights. And Learning just doing by doing. Yeah. And uh, so our kids were kind of getting used to the fact they were still fairly young, uh, like middle, middle, middle of grade school, school yeah. and, and uh, just elementary. barely, barely elementary, you know. And um, it was always I always think it's funny because we'd like yell out on Sunday afternoon come on, kids, you got to come. And it, we'd be like calling out in the neighborhood. We got, where are we going? You got to go to grandpa and grandma's because we're going to prison. <laughs> and all the neighbors would hear. Everybody hears it. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. Yeah. So what does it mean and what does it look like to have a congregation in a prison? How is it similar to other places and how is it different? I think it's mostly about equipping the men to be the church and to take ownership of it. So instead of outside people like myself and other volunteers coming in and doing church for them, mm -hmm. we're empowering them to be the church, to realize that they have skills, um, they're musicians, they're prayer warriors, uh, they're Bible scholars. And so to identify those gifts and then to get them plugged in in the life of the church. Mm -hmm. And so we have, and almost every prison congregation has this, an inside council of inmates that forms a leadership team and they help make decisions that affect the life of the church but more importantly pray for other people in the church to promote unity because a lot of times the guys um well here's one difference this leadership team it's almost very competitive everybody wants to be on it and so <laughs> on the outside church it's like pulling teeth getting exactly. people to be on council like <laughs> Sounds very i different. can't do it i'm too busy i'm not going to do it but these guys, they want to participate. So if they're not on it, they feel like left out. So it's a little bit of a different environment. Um, you have to really be concerned with stroking egos and things like that because the guys, they want to feel accepted and they very much need to be affirmed. Hmm. Uh, affirmation and encouragement is a really big part of my job. Yeah. Trying to stay positive, trying to um, 
keep the guys greatly encouraged so that their faith can continue to grow. The Inside Council, we're kind of trying to revamp a little bit. We've been trying to meet with them twice a month, but um, with some work schedules, we're, we're going to try something different and try to have a little longer meeting once a month, but we're going to see how this goes because some of them have work schedules that hinder them from coming into our meetings because sure. they're still working, and then it's at a time where we can't meet because they come in right before count and all that. Yeah. Um, but we try to get the guys involved in doing prayers um, and serving communion during um, our worship service. Greeting people at the door, making them feel welcome. Yeah, passing out bulletins. and um, mm -hmm. But even when we're not there, we're trying to equip them to be part of the church, so like to be the deacons. So they see people in need. They might not be able to give them anything physically, but they might be able to sit down and pray with them yeah. or direct them to another person that might have gone through a similar experience as they have and talk with them and help them to, to work through something. I, I'm curious about the relationships. I mean, you're building relationships with each other, building relationships among the, the community that's at the prison. And I'm wondering about stories, because stories are so fascinating in, in ministry and, and in the work that you do. How have you seen those relationships build? How have you seen lives transformed? We should tell them about Billy. Why don't you tell them about Billy? So at first when Billy was coming to our um, uh, Bible studies and church and stuff, and he wouldn't talk very much. He was very quiet. I'm not even positive. He might have a few special needs. But... Um, it started coming out in prayer that he had no one. Nobody. His, nobody his at all. His entire family, his parents, his siblings, everyone had abandoned him. They had nothing to do with him. They went right to him. They went visit him. Nothing. He's, and he, he broke down and he said, I have no family. I have no one that comes to visit me. So every weekend when it's visit time, no one comes to visit Billy. And... When we left, I, I shared this with Rick, and I said, we need to do something for Billy. He needs, he has us coming in weekly, but, you know, sometimes he can't make it or whatever. And we had just started a little bit while back a mentorship program where we come in as volunteers, but sometimes um, people don't feel comfortable with that or want to do something different. So we set up a mentorship where they can come in and be on the visit list, not as a volunteer, but as a visitor, like a family member, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then come in and visit an inmate. But the hopes are that they can continue to walk with them if they get out within a time frame, you know, mm -hmm. that they could continue to walk with this brother. Yeah. And so we had a husband and wife team that wanted to mentor and we set him up, and he regards this couple as his brother and sister. Wow. Wow. And he has had pictures taken with him. He shows them off to all of us. <laughs> Look at my brother and sister. I have, this is my family, and you're my family. And um, he's almost giddy with it. it mm. You know, he's so proud. And at some points, it's almost like a little bit of envy in, with other guys, but but they realized too that he had this is his only visitors, yeah. you know, and they have other people from the, maybe their church or or from their family that come to visit him. Some of them don't even get mentors because they have so many people on their visit list that they can't have any more visitors. Right. You know, so he has this couple that visit him a couple of times a month, mm. and um, yeah. it just means the world to him. Yeah. I wonder about any 
misconceptions that are out there um, about what your, your work entails? Maybe one thing that came up was about two years ago, our prison changed over from being a general medium security prison to housing primarily sex offenders. And so there's a lot of misconceptions regarding sex offenders, like stranger danger and all this kind of thing that everybody's um, threatened by them perhaps. But maybe one misconception with sex offenders is that uh, most of these guys have been victims themselves. And the fact is that victims sometimes create new victims. And when we first had the changeover, I thought there'd be a lot of pushback against it. And one of the men in the local church said to me right after a service, he said, sex offenders, I have a real problem with that. And I didn't know what he meant. And our conversation was interrupted and he was never able to explain himself. Like um, if he was victimized as a child or if he knew someone that was. Um, but anyway, maybe about a week later, I received a check from that same individual that even though he was really wrestling with this issue of sex offenders and the needs that they had, um, he was still willing to support our ministry. I think there are quite a few misconceptions about prisoners, especially when we use stereotypical language like hardened criminals or when people use cliches like, you know, uh, lock them up and throw away the key as if somehow long-term incarceration will solve their problems or that the best solution is somehow separating them from the rest of society on a permanent basis. Yeah. I guess maybe that's the misconceptions that I deal with the most is misconceptions about what is the proper solution for a crime. And I'm more in the camp of restorative justice against retribution, shorter sentences, but helping the community and the individual rehabilitate so that they'll change their lives and become more productive citizens. Mm -hmm. Say a little bit more about that, because I think that's a pretty important, uh, a, a pretty important idea, and I think it's unfortunately something that is not—it's not necessarily in the common story in our in our country and our culture we, in a lot of ways. We see, a, we've seen some guys in, that have been in for a long time, and criminals, so to speak, learn more criminal behavior the longer they're in prison, mm -hmm. in a, some sense. Especially yeah, more is not necessarily better. More is not better. It's, <laughs> it's, it's frustrating to see um, guys that are given a sentence, but then they're giving, they have their treatment right before they leave. And then they have to rehash everything from the past. And it's painful. And, and so they have to bring up everything that they've tried to forget and bring it all back right before they are going to walk out the doors. And... To me, that just doesn't, it seems wrong. Mm -hmm. It feels like they should be starting treatment as soon as they start their time in prison. Yeah. And then the treatment should be ongoing until they leave. Mm -hmm. Not just at the tail end of their time that they're serving, that they just put in their nine months of treatment or whatever it is, or 18 months or whatever. And then, and then for the guys that we're dealing with, with sex offense, they have them go through their entire background from the day they were born. They have them try to remember everything that has ever happened to them from the day they were born. It's, some of these guys go through um, a lot of horror trying to remember and bring up everything that's gone because, like Rick said, um, a lot of them have already been offended. So they have to bring up the horrors of their past 
to try to look at what happened in the future, or what happened to their incarceration. But but it, that is extremely painful. Some of them almost get set back because they cannot, they can't deal with it. It's too painful. But you were talking about the, this this idea that it's only a, a short stint right at the end of, of, of one's time right. that they do this. How is, I mean, I, I'm, I'm surprised by that. I thought that a lot of the work happened, a lot of like the counseling and that happened throughout. And so that you doesn't happen. You would think happen. it would. You would think. But usually it's they a box it to be right checked. Yeah. Like tacked in at the end, at the very wow. end of the sentence. Wow. And maybe that's not ideal. Maybe that's done at the state level just because of economics and financial limitations due to budget constraints or mm-hmm. overpopulation in the prison. Like if you look at the state of Iowa where we serve, we're constantly overpopulated when it comes mm-hmm. to the prisons. And guys are in um, three-man cells instead of two-man cells, and we're at or above capacity almost every single day. Mm-hmm. And so because of that overpopulation in the prisons, I think there's not enough classroom space to do all the education that's necessary. Could you say something about the, I mean, the, I always think about the prison industry and it feels like it's, it feels like a growth industry from the outside perspective. And I, and I don't know as much as certainly as, as you do, but it seems like we're building a lot more prisons than schools. That could be a myth. That could be something that I, I don't know much about, but could you speak to that? It feels that way, but I'm not sure that we are building more um, than we're building schools. Um, but in our state, what we've seen is um, the, the state budget, I think it's about 30% just on the Department of Corrections. It takes up a lot of our money, a lot of our resources. And I wonder if we would be smarter to spend more money at the front end in order to prevent this kind of thing from happening, especially... Um, in our neighborhoods that are wrecked by crime, like especially in Des Moines, Iowa, where we could uh, focus on helping juveniles and correct their behavior at an early age mm-hmm. so they don't end up in our prisons. And like you said, pump the money into the schools. That'd be yeah. way, way better than pumping it into prisons. Right, right. And we have, like, we have a friend that's a school counselor. She feels like there's not enough money given to them as school counselors. There's not enough counselors within the school and even the, the men that we work with are, a lot of them have mental health issues. That's really rampant. And if there was more done within society at the end of mental health, I think when they cut back the mental health hospitals, I understand why they did it, but they didn't replace it with anything. Right. They didn't, they just eliminated it. Yeah, there's no safety net. And so now these guys, they have mental health issues. They don't know what to do with them. They don't know how to deal with them. A lot of times their mental health has led them to crime mm. because they don't know how to deal with their mental health or they don't have the medication, the appropriate stuff to, to deal with it. So mm. I feel like that on the forefront, that would really help if there was more help for them on the mental health aspect. That would cut down population in the prison yeah. a lot, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. Do you see, so I think certainly there's, there's probably an education piece um, and are there other issues and the mental health piece, are there other issues that you see that maybe are related to some of the challenges that either you face just in the prison as a pastor or with the, uh, some of the, some of the guys that are coming into prison and, and how is that, do you see that as being connected to other larger issues as well? One of the biggest issues is uh, substance abuse. 
whether it's drugs or alcohol or something else, mm -hmm. um, any sort of addictive behavior can get someone ended up in prison. Like for sex offenders, uh, sexual addiction, pornography, that kind of thing. But for other offenders, drug offenses, um, alcohol offenses can lead to prison. And, and so I think what needs to be done especially is treatment programs for addictions in, mm -hmm. in facing that just head on. Yeah. It seems like this would be, you're, you have the kind of congregation that you hope shrinks. Would that be a fair thing? It's just like, yeah. it's a, and when your congregation shrinks and somebody gets out, do you ever have any follow-up? Do you ever connect with them again? Do you ever see them again? We do to some degree, but maybe not as much as what we would like. We like to have more follow-up than what we do. Yeah. We do keep track of some of the guys. Mm -hmm. And what we find is that when they get out, um, they're overwhelmed by some of the challenges of life, especially the financial challenges. And so they're working all the time trying to pay their bills, but they're forgetting about the care of their spiritual lives. Like it seems like pulling teeth to try to get these guys to take part in a congregation. So part of our job, I feel, is identifying congregations that are accepting of people that get out of prison, that are welcoming and that promote hospitality to everyone so that they can find a church home. Because it's more than just paying the bills and uh, the economic part of being a citizen. It's, it's the relational aspects and the spiritual aspects of being um, a whole person. And so not just caring for the, the mind and the body, but caring for the soul. And so really, um, I guess that's our, our biggest need. We've been in contact with a number of the guys, but um, that's probably my biggest concern. What's your biggest concern, Rose? I was going to say that it, it's tricky because some of the guys, when they get out, are still on parole. And at least in the state of Iowa, as a volunteer that we're considered, we're not allowed to have contact with guys on parole because they're still on paper. And so we tell them, when you're off paper, you can contact us. But we don't know where, they're, where they end up. You mm. know, we, we have no idea where in the state of Iowa they're at. Um, so I always try to remind the guys, we have a blog spot, New Life Prison Community. You can find us on the Internet. You know, Google us. You can find it. And you look it up, there's, there's our information right there. Rick's email and and phone number are right there and so sometimes we've had guys just out of the blue i still remember one um one in particular it was new year's eve um we had not heard from this guy he called rick at like 11:30 at night we were with our family in michigan and here's this phone call from this former inmate and he needed some help because he had been drinking too much and he needed Rick to kind of talk him off the ledge. And, um, and I was glad he called, but it was just kind of a shock because it was like 1130 at night, right. um, New like Year's right Eve. New Year's Eve. <laughs> <laughs> um, so sometimes guys contact us and just let us know or drop us a line and say, I'm doing well. Hmm. And then, you know, other guys we don't hear from or we hear from when they get in trouble. And then they, they either need some counseling, um, someone to talk to or um, they're hoping we're going to bail them out of something. Mm -hmm. um, it hasn't happened a whole lot, but every once in a while, um, there's a few that have um, done that. So I imagine that at times this work can be 
pretty tiring, draining, challenging. What ways do you um, take care of yourself? What practices do you have? What things do you do that help you continue? Probably the biggest thing for me is bicycle riding. I love riding my bike. And in fact, um, when I get on my bike, I just feel like it clears my head and it's good exercise. And um, I'm out in the outdoors. So that's probably the most uh, therapeutic thing that I do is the bike riding. And this year I've been riding with my daughter. So it's been a big adventure too. She's 17 years old. Really enjoy the bike riding. What about you, Rose? Um, I probably don't practice this well enough because <laughs> I'm busy with things at home as well. I try to get out walking when I can, um, and that helps. But I think the biggest thing for me is I love to sing, and I lead um, a once-a-month um, praise team at our church on the outside, but I also lead the praise team uh, in the inside. Okay. Um, and so when I'm home alone, a lot of times I'll just like put on YouTube and pick out some of my favorite Christian songs and just kind of blast it through the house and sing along. And, and that just kind of helps me like refocus and stuff. What else would you want us to know uh, about your work, about your passion? Yeah. What would you share? I, I think it's about hope and believing in people that they're, they have possibilities. They can change. Mm-hmm. That they're not just stuck where they're at, that no one is defined by their past, but that they have hope for the future. So I guess for me, it's always been about staying positive about people and their capacity to change. I've seen it myself, the capacity to change over the years, and I see it in others as well. And so for the guys in prison, I have hope for them that there's a better life for them. And not just a free ticket to get to heaven, but there, there's something for them to do. The, a life of purpose awaits uh, for following Christ. I think as a Christian that we need to remember that, you know, Jesus said, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you've done to me. These are God's children too. And I think so often in society, we just cast them away. Yes. But they're still God's children. And the men that we've worked with, I've heard more than once volunteers will say, was that a volunteer? Was that an inmate? (laughs) Because they were having an intelligent conversation with someone that was highly educated and they didn't, couldn't tell. Mm -hmm. A lot of the guys that we're dealing with, um, at least within our setting, may look like the guy that's sitting next to you at work or in church or your next door neighbor. They don't look any different. Mm. They could be any one of us. They just made a bad choice and they got caught with it. And yeah, we have... We've seen pastors come through there. We've seen youth leaders come through there. School teachers. School teachers. They just made bad choices. Some of them got kind of framed into stuff that wasn't really what it appeared to be, too. And Mm. um, we just have to remember that these are all God's children, too. They were created in His image. And and they have um, a special purpose in this, on this earth as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yes. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. You're welcome. welcome. Great. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. It's great to be here. At one point in our conversation, Rick said that their work is really all about hope, believing in people, and remembering that no one is defined by their past, but are made in the image of God, valuable, and loved. For the people they work with in the prison, whatever it is that brought them to prison was real, and it may take time to heal and reconcile, but they are still people with value. In our conversation, I heard Rick and Rose reminding themselves, and also those in prison, of this truth. 
This insight might be especially important in the work that Rick and Rose are doing with New Life Prison Ministry, but it's important for us to remember too. It's easy to hear or see things around us that make us question who we are or our own worth. And while there are likely things we could all do better, we are still valuable and loved. How might we remind others of their value more often and add to the positive voices they hear? And how might we remind ourselves too? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. And special thanks to Rick and Rose from New Life Prison Ministry for taking some time to talk with us. If you want to stay up to date with all things going on in the Sandbox, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or sign up at our mailing list at sandboxcooperative.com. You can also rate and review us on iTunes and join us in the conversation. And as always, be sure to share this podcast with someone who might like it. There's always more room in the Sandbox. Until next time. We'll see ya. Bye. Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox.